have the data, being very clear about what we're going to do with it and what we expect the outcome to be is a key success factor. We have to be relentlessly focused on what we're trying to accomplish to ensure both the quality of the data and the quality of the outcome, ensure that we're acting within the bounds of that contract or bounds of that agreement that we have with citizens. Welcome to The Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. Today's guest is Suzette Kent, the former U.S. Federal Chief Information Officer. Suzette has an extensive background in the financial services industry, and in 2018, joined the federal government with two key goals, drive IT modernization and overcome the challenges in federal IT budgeting and funding alignment. On this episode, Suzette and Cindy discuss the creative friction between the public and private sector, the pros and cons of how the public and private sectors operate and what they can gain by collaborating with one another, and the challenges of avoiding minutiae when working with massive data sets. Plus, they dive into the origin story of the federal data strategy and how Suzette hopes it can be used to solve the problems we face today. All that and more in today's conversation with former federal CIO, Suzette Kent. The Data Chief is brought to you by ThoughtSpot. For more on how the most successful data leaders are driving value in their organizations, join Cindy and the ThoughtSpot team at Beyond 2020, the leading data and analytics event of the year. Go to www.thoughtspot.com slash beyond2020 for more information. This week on The Data Chief, I am thrilled to be talking to Suzette Kent, an inspiration in the public sector and a powerful woman in tech. Suzette, thank you for being on The Data Chief. Thank you for inviting me, Cindy. I'm thrilled to talk to you today. Now, Suzette, I hear we share two great loves, data and football. I understand you're an LSU fan. (laughs) I am, and I'm so happy that they're going to be back on uh, this coming Saturday. But yes, I am a uh, rabid LSU football fan, and it almost parallels uh, my my love of data and technology. So uh, if we do any kind of predictive analytics, they had a great season last year. What's your prediction for this year? Another great season, another fantastic <laughs> season. And I, I now even more, I've always been primarily a college football fan and I love the passion and the players and I work closely with the university. So I've had the fantastic pleasure of meeting with so many of these, uh, young men and the coaches. But now I have to be an NFL fan because there's so many of them in the NFL. When you turn on, you're like, Oh, that, you know, there, you know, that's that person's from LSU, that one's from LSU, and um, watching their careers blossom has been fantastically exciting. And a few of them actually even uh, played football with my son. And so it, it is uh, not only a passion, but kind of a family affair. Yeah, yeah. So I did not know that about your son. And see, we're we're never going to get to the data stuff. So, <laughs> so I feel divided too. So my my son plays college football, and his one of his uh, best friends just became the starting center for the Lions. So, and everyone knows we're Packers fans. So, <laughs> I, so it was like, wait, my heart is now torn. But so good, so good to see these 
people who work so hard make it that far. Absolutely. So back to data and technology. So Suzette, I can't think of a more important role, the CIO of federal, and yet you started more in the private sector. So tell us about this transition from private sector financial services to public sector. What compelled you to make that switch? Sure, Cindy. I'm going to start with the back end of your question first. What compelled me to make the switch was an opportunity to serve. And in the way that we started, being very passionate about many of the things that I would like to see happen in the ways that we inform government policy, in the ways that we serve citizens, and how we spend taxpayer dollars. And it was an opportunity to take things that I had seen work in a global manner, companies of all different types of size and different areas of focus in industry, and apply those inside our federal government. So so the very first thing was service. But, you know, I was in mostly financial services, but, you know, consulting and banking my entire career. And when I talk to people about, you know, being in the private sector in that transition, one of the wonderful things about consulting is that you're working on most, in most cases, the projects that are most important to a business. It's about growing their business, mergers and acquisitions. It's about changing their business. It's about figuring out something that hasn't been done before. And that's what I was always passionate about in those spaces. And as my career progressed, I worked with companies that were larger, were global, and were doing some of the most complex things with technology and business transformation and changing industries, things that we had not accomplished before, either on a national scale or on a global scale. And in those transformation projects, I met so many of the leaders of our technology companies around the globe and especially in the United States. I also had the opportunity to work with many state and local government officials. And because I was in banking and in banking during the crisis, I also had the opportunity to work with with some of the folks in Washington So my experiences had a a broad footprint, but in private sector, particularly in financial services, it is a highly regulated industry. And many of the companies that can serve in the, the financial services environment that needs data security, that has very personal relationship, has a very high bar for service, are some of the same companies that are providing services to our federal government. So when I looked at both the technologies and the people that were involved, it was, you know, funny enough, a, a fairly small community of those big, impactful players. So great opportunity to serve and uh, spaces where that challenge of raising the bar for service and solving problems that hadn't been solved before was new territory. Yeah, so that's really interesting, combining financial services, working with all those stakeholders there, but the opportunity to serve. There was an interesting article in uh, September in the Wall Street Journal comparing the generation of tech leaders, looking at the likes of Mark Zuckerberg, for example, and leaders that served during wars that were losing that, that there's not enough in Silicon Valley also focusing on serving citizens, using tech to serve citizens. 
Is it your view? Do you think you'd like to see more people who have worked in the private sector on these big projects come back and also serve in the government? Absolutely, Cindy. I've actually spoken about that and I'll you know share my personal experiences. Um, my husband's retired military. I grew up next to a military base. So you saw this then? You you had you saw it through the other lens, not just through your work, but also in your family. Correct. I lived at my uh, family was very. Uh, you know, we lived where we lived because my father was in the military. My grandparents were in the military, and that instilled a very important sense of service. And as an American especially in the roles that I've been in with leading companies and looking at where technology is going, we have so many assets. It, it, it's a, you know, when you can contribute, I feel like it, it, it is a duty. And I also think that the appreciation between the public and private sector is really important. You know, I would hear people say things like, oh, you know, the government should do this and that. Well, let, let's really, you know, digest that. Let's unpack that. Here's what they can do and here's what, you know, they can't do. And that appreciation on the private sector side is very important. It's important in how we, you know, best inspire and bring solutions to the government. On the other side, and I have said this about myself as a leader and teams would say this, you know, at the private sector side, you move fast. And so there's a level of impatience with bureaucracy that I think we have to have. We have to demand faster solutions in government. We have to look at things where the law was written in 1945 and probably not really applicable now. So how do we fix some of those things? And that creative, I, I called it creative friction in talking to a lot of the leaders, but that balance of people going back and forth between government and private sector makes us all better. It makes, it makes on the private sector side, better products and services that come that are offered up for government use. And on the government side, ensuring that we don't ever get comfortable with status quo and we're bringing in leading practices and we're understanding what's going on in the market. And when you look across the agency CIOs and we you saw people like Stuart McGigan come in the state from Johnson & Johnson and Dana Deasy come in the DOD from JP Morgan. And I could keep going on, Rajiv Mathur, Ryan Cody, you know, Jim Graffer, going down that list, it was a nice mix of individuals with long-term government perspective, but also individuals who had been in various places across the private sector so that we had a really good creative friction and we were bringing in you know, different perspectives, best practices, and bringing that diversity of thought. And that's the way that we accomplished some of the things you know, that we were able to do. Yeah, so creative friction but impatience too. And and one of the things that I worked on at Gartner was the data and analytics maturity model. So with all due respect, I can say that the public sector lags in their use of data and analytics. And we even look at the COVID crisis now. The CDC mm -hmm. said, had we modernized earlier, we would have been able to handle the pandemic using data better. 
So when you come in from fast moving organizations, how do you inspire people? How do you get them to accept? No, we do have to move faster. How do you get them to break the rules? When I, I will tell you, somebody said to me, a CDO in one of the agencies said, Cindy, our culture here, it's not fear of failure. It's fear of being put up in front of a congressional hearing. So how do you handle all that? So a couple of things. And sometimes I'm going to use something you said in there. I don't encourage people to break the rules. I ask them what rules we need to change. And so focus on the outcomes, right? How can we get to this particular outcome? And why aren't we getting there fast enough? And that's a little bit of the element of that impatience is, wait, you know, in and I, I had uh, the, the private sector side gives you comparisons. And the private sector side, I could get this done in six months. Why can't I in government? And then digesting that. Sometimes I can't because of a law that ensures fair competition. Okay, that's probably acceptable. And so I will understand that. But then in other cases, there's things that, you know, this person has to do it and this person has to do it. Like, what value are they adding to the process? I don't understand how do we take that, you know, out of the process? So, you know, it's, it's uh, being focused on the outcome, figuring out how we can drive the process faster. One of the, the other things that I hope is a hallmark of, of success, but just a process that doesn't go away is in the government. Um, a lot of the things that we did through the CIO council, the CISO council, now the CDO council is doing the same thing is we did pilots of certain things at the center. So what that allowed is something happening end to end, hands-on, you could, you know, so whether that was data sharing for a particular data set, whether that was setting up a a cloud environment for people to test and, and get to know the tools, we created situations where people could actually see and evaluate a thing, not analytical thinking in abstract, but a real experience and learning through those pilots and then taking the lessons from the pilots helped us then take the next step in doing something bigger, something maybe agency wide, something with a bigger impact. And in inside the federal government, we can be data and technology led, but it requires that the whole kind of business process and the whole operational team be on board. And you can't drive change only from a technology side. You have to have those partners on board. And and that's the other thing that sometimes these pilots or or early steps, you know, help us do is ensure that we had real things we could talk about. We could drive outcomes. And like you said, I had results. I'll use one of the things that we did. I actually did have to go do a congressional report on what happened in the pilot, what was successful and what wasn't. And, you know, they were kind of really hammering, well, you missed this and this. And I said, well, or this, you know, this outcome, you know, didn't said that that's why we did it as a pilot. We were trying to learn. It was 30 people. And what we wanted to do is when we do it for thousands, ensure that we get it everything right. Right. And so, Change, you know, driving change inside the federal government is um, a different process than private sector. Many times in private sector, the CEO says, we're going to do this thing, right? 
you get all the resources, you rally, and, and, and everyone's, you know, pointed in that same direction. But you have more clear constituencies that are driving that decision. You also have sometimes much more clear metrics. And the federal side, you know, defining the constituency is sometimes an interesting part of the problem. Is it yeah. a citizen? Is it the mission serving people? Is it Congress? Is it the administration? Is it something else? And how do we do those? So outcome focused, because people get on the same page when you're talking about an outcome. People have different opinions when you're talking about process along the way and do things that show results so that they can get their head around tangible activity and make very clear decisions on that and not talk, you know, kind of not work in the abstract. So I, I like these takeaways rather than, so you got hammered on missing this outcome, but if you come back to who was the primary constituent we were focused on, mm-hmm. I think that shores people up. Yes. But though, you know, nobody, nobody likes to miss anything. <laughs> so are we over-indexing on being perfect or is it also changing that mindset that, no, this is why we start small, but let's focus on this constituent, this outcome. I'm going to go back to something in the federal data strategy, because in, in your statement there, you nailed a couple of the important pieces. When, especially in the technology space, when we are considering new technology and new uses of data, many times we don't know every single thing when we start. And that is why we need some very practical applications. The very first thing in the federal data strategy year one action plan was clarity around the questions that you want to answer. And that that does a couple of things, a really important things. And it's important that it was first. First, it helps us, you know, this is a little difference also between private sector and public sector. And you made the comment about data sharing. When we collect data inside the federal government, that's governed by law and it's governed by policy. And how we use that data um, has one of the primary roles of the federal CIO is to protect the data that is on our federal networks. That means privacy. That means you know ethical use. That means um, that it's used for the purpose in which it was collected and kind of that contract with citizens. And so that's a, that's a very important set of concepts. So when we collect and use that, or, you know, when we have the data, being very clear about what we're going to do with it and what we expect the outcome to be is a key success factor. I, I know I love talking to the folks on the you know, CDO council because sometimes you get so excited because you can do things that you didn't expect, or you weren't aware of data. And that's great. But we have to be relentlessly focused on what we're trying to accomplish to ensure both the quality of the data and the quality of the outcome, and ensure that we're acting within the bounds of that contract or bounds of that agreement that we have with citizens. And, and so those are our, uh, some of the things that, that are different you know, in the discussion, but they're really important to drive, you know, what we're trying to accomplish. We have hundreds, we have the best, the federal government has amazing data, hundreds of thousands of data sets. And if you're not laser focused, you can get lost. Yeah, it can be overwhelming. Do nothing, right? Exactly, you're overwhelming. And I see, you see private sector companies that 
have had similar experiences and have led to not producing the outcomes, but also when they're laser focused, they've created amazing outcomes and had breakthroughs that they didn't expect. Yeah. So there's a couple things in there that I'd like to unpack. So I will say, even though maybe the data and analytics maturity in the public sector or in government might lag the private sector, one area where I will put a stake in the ground that say you were best. The federal data strategy is brilliant. And I have spoken to many CDOs who would say, we don't have, we don't have a strategy. It's just like dump everything in one pot and who knows what we're going to do with it. So I would encourage no matter if whoever's listening, if you're in private or um, public service, take a look at the federal data strategy. I think that is brilliant. Take us through Suzette how you even started, because there's so much in there. There's measurement, there's upskilling, there's prepare to share as a key tenant. Where did you start to even craft it and get the buy-in across all the agencies? Yeah, great question. And uh, for your listeners, I do want to say one thing. When you mentioned, take a look at it, it's on strategy.data.gov. And there's also resources.data.gov. And that not only has material, but it also reports progress on accomplishment. And so when you use the word start, I have to reflect that I think what we did first was actually uh, standing on the shoulders of many individuals who had done work before in this space, but it was a coalesced into a uniting document that we could get all agencies on board with. And I think it, a little bit, it goes back to the last discussion. It's because everyone wanted to do everything and they wanted to do different things and agencies have different mission. And so the mechanism wasn't fully there to recognize how do we go down a path, but a path that is measurable and clear, but still takes into account the fact that agencies have different mission, they have different conceptual contracts around use of data. For example, some agencies have a mission to make data available, others do not. And they're also at very, very different places of maturity. Statistical agencies had, you know, well, uh, you know, deep practitioners. Some of our smaller agencies, they didn't have anybody. Right. They didn't have any, and when I say anybody, they didn't have anyone for whom it was a full-time job, for whom had specific responsibilities or had any background and training. They also, in many cases, we didn't have agency leadership who made business decisions based on data. Right. So, or, or based on, you know, specific data for specific questions. So anyway, what the goal was, was a couple of things. One set a North Star, and that's the strategy and the, the tenants of the strategy. And those are, you know, fantastic things that probably any public or private sector company could read and say, yeah, I I understand and I would agree with those types of things. But then we broke it down into practices. So there's 40 practices. So what does it mean? What do you do on a daily basis in your business, whether you are the data scientist or the technology individual who's managing those data sets, or you're the business person that is looking at the information presented to you to make decisions? What do you do? And then that last piece is a yearly action plan. And that yearly action plan, it was kind of done from the uh, perspective of where do we start? 
And how do we get some of the foundational things in place? And then we will build up year over year and enhance and and kind of grow and think of it as like concentric circles kind of going out as agencies build not only business operational perspective, but they bring in the talent. And, you know, I have to commend the men and women working on the federal data strategy. They came from agencies all over the federal government. And we augmented that with uh, team members from academia. We did a very significant public engagement. We had a lot of transparency with the Hill, that process uh, point that I talked about, the uh, progress and outcomes achieved, they were posted online. So kind of everybody knew at the same time what was accomplished. And it is my hope, and I know from talking to the team members, you know, who are, who are there, they're continuing the charge. We have seen some great outcomes delivered. We, you know, although things were, there were a lot of challenges during COVID, we were actually able to take some of those practices and protocols that we were piloting right, and put in place and, and actually use some of those. Now, should we have done it earlier? Would it have been better? Absolutely. But we should use this as an example of why we need to never lose focus, why we need to keep bringing on, you know, and focusing people in this space and why we need to move faster and ensure that being data driven and treating our data as an asset to drive policy, answer questions and provide evidence for how well things are, that should always be a priority. Yeah. So you started by looking at what was already done. You crap, you Leverage that. So get rid of that not invented here syndrome. You ha- the mission statement is excellent. If, if we drill into a couple points you mentioned, so some agencies were at a lower level of maturity or they didn't value data. Some of us call it experience-based decision-making. And yet one of your key tenants is building a culture that values data. And yet culture is one of the hardest hardest barriers to becoming data-driven. What are some of the best practices there that you've seen across the agencies? Yeah, I'm going to go back to kind of outcomes, right? And and starting with, with small things. How many times, probably every one of your listeners has had this experience when someone does something that is data-driven and, and you produce kind of the summary and this and this and this are the 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 outcomes that the very first thing someone says is, I don't know where you got that. I need to see the data. They distrust it, right? They distrust it. There is not that level of trust. And that's why as we're using some of the automated technology, we're investing in the data strategy side by side is you have to trust, start with trusting the data. So as we elevate the CDOs in agencies, as we, we put discipline into the data practice, we, we are building the trust and we build the trust with the mission serving people and put it in the analogy, you know, that that's kind of simple. Do I trust data and technology to make a suggestion online? If I looked at these three things that I might like this other thing, like marketing companies do oh, probably, but there's not any real consequence to that. Do I trust the collection, interpretation, and injection of data to drive my car. We're seeing right now, people trust it to back up. People might trust it to interpret whether you're driving over the lines or not, but not necessarily, you know, we're, we're, we're not all the way to the place of 
autonomous vehicles fully. And, and that's that kind of has an analogy back to how we change the culture is investing in the data and focusing on, again, that very first thing, prioritizing the question. What am I trying to answer? So when there's a belief in the quality of the data, the understanding, you're using it for a focused purpose, there's more belief in the outcome. And I have seen some of the agency leadership and there's, you know, press on this, you know, Sonny Purdue talked about his, you know, dashboard, um, some of the other agency uh, at Department of State has shared some of the things that that they are doing around their operations. Um, lots of agencies have talked about the initiatives that they're undergoing and how that is helping not only inform what they're doing, but ensure that they're focusing on, you know, or helping them shift their focus to the right, you know, sets of activities, resources, those types of things. And it's going to be a constant investment. And that's the other reason that we we set the data strategy as a decade long activity. And every year you have a new set of kind of what are the things that we're working on this year. So it lets you continue to raise the bar. It lets you consider that there may be different priorities from year to year and new technologies. But it also most importantly starts with the concept that we should not stop. Right. Yeah. So constant improvement, evolution, and innovation. But you brought up a really a difficult topic. Let's see if we can go here. And if we can't, that's okay. But trust. And Mm -hmm. trust is actually at an all-time low, according to the Edelman uh, barometer, not only in public service, but also in the private sector. And sometimes when you don't trust the data, or when there is a culture of of punishment and fear. And so I'm going to take a case study that I've used in many talks around uh, the, the VA, the Veterans Affairs uh, Hospitals, and how there were two sets of books, one that showed positive outcomes and not long wait times. And then eventually we learned that was not the real data. So this is going back a couple of years now. So when you don't trust the data or when data is used to punish, then how do we overcome that? I can't comment, you know, on that specific uh, example because, you know, I wasn't there at the time. But when you look at the goal around data, it has a couple of words. It actually says data as a strategic asset, but transparency and accuracy. So transparency in the collection even. Correct. Yeah, I think that's so huge. uh, Transparency and and trust, and I've worked in this space with private sector companies. I think it's even harder in government because trust is a really hard thing to build that your listeners probably could think about multiple situations in their life. And in the private sector, if that trust with the individual you're doing business with and how they collect, how they treat and how they guard your privacy, how they use your data, you can leave. I can choose not to do business with company XYZ and I can go do business with another company. We can't make some of those same choices when it comes to working with the federal government. You, and, and so how we build trust is even more important. And the the way that I think the government has made progress, and it might not be as transparent to everybody, is 
think about the data journey. And this is some of the things that happened, you know, that, that I said, the shoulders we were standing on. There was a commitment in previous administrations to make federal data sets available. And you know what they said to agencies? Three. Make three data sets available. You know how many are available right now? Oh, a lot. Hundreds. More than 300,000. <laughs> yes. Yeah. More than 300,000. Right? So this kind of, this has been happening where people are being more transparent. I think even the way that you and I met was through a company that uh, looked at all of that available data, was able to do things that sometimes agencies weren't able to do themselves because of the deep expertise in both data and understanding you know, the business processes. So we, we continue to build the trust by transparency of the collected data, clarity, of the questions that were asked and allowing outcomes to be examinable. Yeah. And, you know, think about we're in a, a culture where people not only expect kind of instant answers, they're very inquisitive. They go look up things themselves. Yeah. And yeah. that will help us, you know, change the culture. Because if somebody says the sky is purple, I'm like, how, how do I, I, how do I understand that? I need to see, you know, what data is behind it and why and, and those types of things. So I think we begin to change the culture through that transparency and accuracy and then absolute clarity on how the question was asked. And when you, when you get the right mix of those things together, you're taking steps in building trust. Yeah, so I have to say I've been one of the beneficiaries of those 300,000 plus data sets in the BI bake-offs that I would run. Uh, two, two of the favorite was Department of Transportation related to traffic fatalities and then, and then the opioids. So from CMS, yep. you know, ha how we were doing there. So just excellent, a, a wealth of data. Yes. And you mentioned transportation, you know, shout out to our, our friend Dan Morgan over there. They have done an amazing job with the wealth of data, um, you know, and, and there were agencies that I often held up, you know, the, the, the folks at NOAA who have a mission, you know, to, to make data available, you know, the, across the Department of Commerce, the, you know, the disciplines that are there and the fact that those teams are being open and transparent and they have you know, partners like you and others in, you know, kind of private sector and industry that can show jobs created, impact made, business outcomes that are positive, you know, helps others kind of understand the long process and the related impact of making those investments in, in data quality. Yeah. So we have the outcomes, we have the data. One of the other tenets of the data strategy is raising data literacy or data fluency, as I like to call it. And you have an incredible catalog of um, courses and ways to build skills internally. What do you think has been most impactful or what would you advise somebody working for an organization where data literacy is still low? Again, we go back to pointing to an outcomes because the first the first question someone asks is why you, you ask me, and especially sitting in the role um, that I formerly held, we ask them to be cyber literate. We ask them, of course, every day they have to be literate in their mission, right? They have to be literate in 
what what does my agency do and what are the tenants of my job? Oh, wait, I need to understand cybersecurity. I need to, to use data literacy. So we have to be very clear about why that is important to their role in their agency and in the thing, the contribution that they are making. We also have to put the right investments there. And, and that is incumbent, you know, on, on a lot of different people agreeing that, that this is a priority. Um, one of the things that uh, I will say disappointed me on, being on the federal side versus private sector is the um, the amount that is invested in individual training. That it's too uh, little. It's too little on the federal side as a blanket statement. Yes, right. somebody's listening to this can say, oh, I all these wonderful <laughs> things. Yes, That's okay, yes, but general, yes, I know. Somebody, There's always yeah. one detractor. It's exactly. Okay. That, and that's the lucky person, right? That lucky person <laughs> who, who got all that fantastic training, you know, go for you. I wish that were you know, more broadly applied. But, you know, the, the, the fact is often as we, we seek to be fiscally responsible, you know, sometimes, you know, those, those areas, you know, are, are much thinner than we would hope looking forward. And this is another reason to raise those outcomes to the level of agency leadership and administration leadership to make sure they get priority. And let's, Let's say this, the federal data strategy is part of the president's management agenda. So it had administration priority. It is also part of driving industries of the future. So you've heard comments from OSTP around commitments to industry, but the way that that happens is the work at agencies. So the leadership priority ensures that we get the funding, ensures that we continue to build those skills. We use not only the programs that were out there but we build new programs. And you know, I will also say um, those are the answers for government on the private sector and the academic side. We also have some other responsibilities. Yeah. And that's some of the things that I'm doing now through just as a citizen is we have to create, I'm going to call it demand signals, right? Use the business term. But when you look at what are the jobs in the next decade, and so many of those are data and technology centric. Totally. If we're not driving that interest in K through 12 and building those programs, whether it's in traditional higher ed or alternative learning programs, we're not building the workforce that we need. So there are tactical things that we can do now on the government side to ensure that we are keeping the engine going, but also on the private sector and the academic side, we should recognize that what we need in the next 10 years in an American workforce, in a globally powerful workforce, is different skill sets and make sure we're taking the actions to deliver on those. Absolutely. So I think it's about upskilling the current workforce, but building the skills in the next one. This is why yeah. I, I get excited that ThoughtSpot lets me partner with organizations like Girls Plus Data, yeah. the middle schoolers, yes. and Varsity Tutors. We're launching an online course um, just to get people excited earlier and working with some of the universities. In fact, um, so your former, one of your former homes, ENY, co-innovated to launch a, a, a certificate course mm -hmm. within uh, as part of an MBA degree, but bringing yes. data and analytics. So, so I think all of that is great. Yeah, and Cindy, I want, I want to touch on that too. That that is that's a great example of public-private partnership creating the demand signal because what do most 
people go to college for. They intend to get a job, right? Somewhere. And, and, and those signals of this is what's important. This is what is valued. Help make choices. And also looking at, you mentioned kind of the, the, you know, there, and there's lots of organizations that, the that reach K through 12. If you ask someone in, you know, seventh grade, do you want to be a computer programmer? They might be like, hmm. But if you say, or do you want to be a data scientist? They're like, hmm. But if you say, do you want to study human machine interaction? Do you want to ensure that our oceans are clean? Do you want to figure out how we have a resilient food supply? They're like, okay, that sounds interesting. Yeah, you want to be, you know, fun. a game graphic designer? Like, okay, that's cool. That's how, that's the kind of, we have to give signals from private companies around how you, you know, what kind of things they want people to do to be employable. And we have to talk about the cool stuff that they get to do to get them interested in all the underlying, you know, coursework and study that goes with enabling them to do that really cool thing. Yeah, I say data is everywhere and can make the world a better place. They're like, really? <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. That's good. I like yeah. that. So this is almost like a hard pivot, but I wanted to come back to one of the other tenets of the data strategy, and that's modernizing the technology of which cloud is such a big part of it. And and I liked the quote from Amy Abernathy at uh, the FDA that the cloud strategy is intended to make the use of cloud easy fast and cost effective. And it's part of so much modernization, but there are risks. I mean, you mentioned cybersecurity. So if you look across the agencies, is there one that you think is further ahead on cloud? And and what is the biggest thing holding us back? Is it the cybersecurity? Is it just, well, we have so much on-premises, legacy technical debt, and you you don't get to throw that away. You don't get to just reinvent. I'm going to make a simple statement, then back it up. You know what often holds us back is people, right? And it's not it's not about the can the technology go there because that answer is a resounding yes. It's been proven everywhere. But going there, it, it doesn't mean that you're not doing a lot of the same things that you're currently doing on premises. It means you're allowing someone else to do those for you in a different way. So to be able to do that, you have to understand how they're doing it, all the risks, how you change your operation, how you manage that risk, um, how you react to different things. And from a mission and operations perspective, that's real work. And that changes people's jobs, that changes skill sets, that changes locations, that changes long-term relationships. So that's, it's a complex transition. It's, it's sometimes not even completely about the technology. You could talk to one of the, you know, some of the CIOs and, you know, Dave Shive was the, the vice chair for the CIO council. And, and we would often laugh that, you know, people would, the first question they'd ask is the technology mature enough? Yes. Mm-hmm. But all those other things were more difficult. And so, so I, you know, I say that around people and I'll call that kind of indirect impact of the operational side. But then there's also the direct piece. People do what they are comfortable with. And so back to that reskilling and reinvestment. If we're not 
you know, if, if you've done something for 10 years and you're really good at it, and now you're going to pivot to something else, if we haven't made that investment in helping, you know, that process along and helping you understand and trust, you know, what that new path is, there's going to be resistance. And, and like I said, legally, the CIOs are held accountable for how they protect data and information on federal networks. So, so they and their teams have to understand and believe that they are doing the utmost to protect and secure that information. So if, if they're not sure, they're hesitant. Yeah. And, and so I really enjoy working with Amy. I love uh, talking to her and, 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 you know, going through the strategy and she's in a phenomenal position because she's also, you know, she's the principal deputy and the CIO. So she gets to sit at the nexus of how those come together. And um, I'll throw out one other example. Um, you know, I, I, I mentioned the NOAA piece and what they're doing with the big data project, you know, taking data and putting it in the cloud for use in the public side. And, and they, they went with multiple vendors because they said, you know what? We want everyone to be able to use the data, but we don't know what tools they're going to use. We don't want to dictate that. So we're going to make it available, you know, with, with a multitude of tools. Now, the private sector side came forward and met them on some of that. Because as a taxpayer, you might say, huh, I don't want to do the same thing three times. Right. But they didn't have to do that because they the, their strategy, and that might be something else interesting, you know, their strategy took them to a place where, you know, they had one side of the process and public sector kind of was invited in. But as we think about cloud allows maybe say, let's say it this way, um, an easier entry point for many people using the data. It doesn't change any of the objectives of security, privacy, um, authoritative use, all those types of things, but it makes the process to get there easier. So it's an important set of investments. It gives us a different type of flexibility. And it's another, you know, one of the key areas, you know, through advancing that strategy where we're looking kind of to walk side by side of thing, the technology as we up the use of data. Yeah. So Noah's strategy of multi-cloud, this is what everyone is really doing. It's not one cloud, yeah. it's multiple. Yeah. So I like that you referred to the people being the harder things. And one of my CDOs in financial services made a similar comment. And he actually said to me, you know, I, I just can't get people to think differently. Maybe I should just move everyone or just hire a new team, either in Austin, Texas or Silicon <laughs> Valley, and just let them be more creative. But we don't get to do that. So, so when you're trying to change people's thinking, is it about cross-fertilization or is it creating an innovation lab or what would you recommend? Cindy, there, there are so many different pathways. The one I like the best is shared success. Again, getting back to that outcome. And when you drive an outcome, it's recognized and meaningful and leadership and everybody really gets on board. Innovation labs are fantastic to see things work. So the pilot, the pilot, whether it it's out. a, yeah. yes, whether it's a pilot. And, and I will say this inside government, you know, again, private sector, I love innovation labs and it's so much fun. And I love some of the things that we're doing in our national labs that are applied research. You can, you can get the idea of how something might work. 
But when you talk to a lot of the folks at the agencies, you know, sometimes they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. But you couldn't do that here. It's not real. They can't it's scale it. Right. I see it, jealousy, too. Right. Like, why do they get to work on the cool things? And I'm yes. stuck in the doldrums right. of this that, old tech. Very often they um, the, the way that they look at bringing change into an organization um, can use different mechanisms. So innovation labs, pilots, shared success, competitions. I love some of the competitions, you know, agencies get, they get crazy competitive. And some of these things that we've done with hackathons and things like that, they introduce diverse thinking. And uh, somebody asked me (laughs) in one of the things, you know, all all these, what would you have us do? And and I said, "I'd, I'd do all of them, do all of them, because that also helps you reach people in a different way. And people, especially adult learners, they learn differently. They get motivated differently. And, you know, some, some people like to get the award. Some people like to be part of the team. Uh, some people like to be intellectually challenged. All of those can work. And, you know, particularly when you're in the federal government and everything you do is is supported by taxpayer money you have to be really careful and using some of those tools helps you learn and understand things before you make a big commitment so i was you know widely in favor of it and 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 <laughs> drove it when i was in the federal government um and i'm going to continue to be a fan and an advocate as a um passionate citizen Yeah, good. Thank you. So Suzette, you also mentioned something else, diversity of thought. And as one of the few women in leadership uh, who has such a strong voice, how do you help other women or how, how can women who are just starting out find their voice in tech and in data? Well, as we've talked, you know, kind of around, you know, different parts of of the topic um and when i interact with women the very first thing i always start with is is know and understand the business right that that in which you are working and those authentic connections give you a really strong foundation right to start the conversations whether it's tech or data you know or others and um always be at the table, have a seat. You know, you, you've heard that, you know, in other places, but contribute, you know, to the conversation. You're in a discussion because you bring a unique perspective. That doesn't mean you have to, you know, you're going to be demanded to do something, but, but think about, you know, what unique perspective and, and contribution that you would bring in any way. And um, I, I also always say, demand better behavior of everyone that you're working with. There were many times I, I literally would look around the room and say, where are my friends? Really? <laughs> right? so, you, be, so you call them out on that. Yes. I don't yeah, like I, it when our CEO does that. I'm like, no. don't do that. <laughs> well, I, but, but, you know, um, somebody that, you know, in government, they do lots of shows and, and things and somebody coined the term, a mantle, a panel with all men. <laughs> um, I, I won't participate. 
and and you know obviously if i'm there it's not all men but but when i look at some of those things I'm like this this doesn't make sense because what you're saying by by highlighting some of these individuals is this is what it takes to be successful and so we need to curate and and take action to make sure that you have a diverse perspective of thought and and that doesn't mean just gender it you know it means lots of different things um but we have to demand of our other leaders and people that we're working with that they're actively thinking about it. You know, that it's not just a, oh, if it works out, that it is, that it is a forefront of the conversation. Because especially when you're doing things inside the government, you're serving our entire nation. It is the most diverse population For sure. of anyone, right? That, that, that's out there. So we should have those high standards. And, you know, that's, that's one of the things that I do. And I know that's maybe hard to do, you know, at, at different levels, you know, but I would also say to people, wait, why was the meeting set up like this? Why didn't we include these people? Those are fair dialogues. You may still come to the same result. But as long as there was, you know, there was a conversation, I would also, you know, say that that we should celebrate those unique and diverse approaches to, you know, producing different kinds of outcomes. I know in some of the things like the concepts of hackathons or 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 those, you know, there, there was some, oh, you know, but that brought diversity of thought. Yeah, for sure. And when you would also, you know, I like reverse industry days and, 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 you know, I would, I would all in working with some of the federal agency teams of like, why, when you're doing something you haven't done before, do you think you can write all the requirements? Let's ask, let's talk about what we want to accomplish and let others talk about where they've done that thing and see what we can learn from it. Um, so ensuring that the approaches that we're taking um, have all the right perspectives at the table. They have a component of listening and appreciating experiences of others. And then we have creative friction and constructive dialogue in evaluating those things and applying them to, you know, wh whatever the particular mission space or thing that we're trying to do. Those things help not only be a part, a, a meaning, you know, anyone make a meaningful contribution to a conversation it it, it creates um, a working environment that others want to be a part of well said Suzette I feel like we could go another half hour but I always like to end with one one question as all of us are trying to practice more resilience and gratitude and so much is going on in the world but if you think um, in your world, what are you most grateful for? Cindy, I am, I, I will go back to the conversation we had at the beginning. Um, I am most thankful for family and friends, uh, the constant network of people that I've been able to interact with throughout you know, my personal life and professional life. Um, these times have been incredibly challenging and heartbreaking. And as you said, the 
you have to dig deep in yourself every day to, to, to bring out, okay, you know, that, that resiliency. But I am thankful that there's an opportunity to, to make a contribution and to, to things that, that help make, you know, our world better and lives better for those people that I care the most about. And so um, I'm, I'm happy every day that, that we get another uh, at bat to say at, at how we, at how we can uh, continue to make things better. So, but thank you so much for having me here today. It was great to talk to you and uh, I'll think about you when I'm cheering both for football <laughs> and I'm checking out on the data strategy, all yes. the progress reports. Yeah, Suzette, thank you. And thank you for serving, for being at bat. I look so forward to your next chapter. Thank you for sharing so much. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or listen to more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout on Twitter at BI Scorecard. The Data Chief is brought to you by our friends at ThoughtSpot. Searching through your company's data for insights doesn't have to be complicated. ThoughtSpot makes it easy. With ThoughtSpot, anyone in your organization can easily answer their own data questions, find facts, and make better, faster decisions. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.